This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Richard Maddox, the author of The Whisper of a Saint, A Search for the Permanent Bliss of Enlightenment. Theo is a successful Silicon Valley executive, but one fateful day, a guru appears in a vision and calls him to the Himalayas. While most children played with toys, a certain boy saw visions of a white-robed holy man. The child grew from adolescence to manhood, but never forgot the image of his guru. When his teacher tells the 50-year-old pupil to leave the U.S. and find him on the other side of the world, the man jumps on a plane bound for India. But the American's journey of self-discovery has only just begun. In the mystical mountain passes of the Himalayas, he encounters wonders that are strange, beautiful, and inspiring. Can he find the ultimate spiritual truth of enlightenment in the modern world? The Whisper of a Saint is an awe-inspiring spiritual novel. If you like enlightenment quests, ancient Indian spiritual guidance, and vibrant portrayals of the Himalayan wilderness, then you'll love Richard Dietrich Maddox's empowering tale. Richard Dietrich Maddox grew up in the Midwest and graduated with honors from Princeton University. After graduation, he spent five years in Europe studying literature and preparing to teach meditation. He taught meditation full-time for two years before serving as the vice president of sales for seven successful high-tech startup companies. In 2005, he retired from the business world to concentrate on writing. He is the author of other number one Amazon best-selling enlightenment novels, Remembering Eternity, Lucinda, and The Enlightenment of Joshua Inley, all of which have been highly acclaimed by readers. Meet Richard at richardmaddox.com. Here is the interview with Richard Maddox. In your own words, who is Richard Maddox? I'm a seeker of enlightenment. I've uh, spent over 40 years, Valeria, seeking uh, what I consider to be the goal of our life here on earth, which is spiritual enlightenment. Um, I'm a teacher of meditation trained by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi that some people may remember as the guru to the Beatles. And uh, since then, I've been meditating um, consistently for those 40 years. Also, have read the spiritual literature uh, kind of uh, very widely and uh, have taught a lot of people how to meditate, and that's my focus in life. Before we talk about some of the topics in your book, The Whisper of a Saint, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off-record. The first one had to be this one. What is enlightenment to you, Richard? 
Yeah, enlightenment is the establishment of pure consciousness 24-7. So if we've all had those experiences in life, Valeria, especially many of us as a child, when suddenly we were out playing or we were looking at nature and time went away, problems went away, thought went away, and we were established at that moment in pure bliss, pure peace. And that was that was pure consciousness. And that ultimately is what we are. So mm-hmm. most of us believe that we're a mind and a body and an ego, that we have this little story that I'm Richard or I'm Valeria and yes. I grew up here and I did this and I did that. Yeah. But this is just the ego telling us a story. When we really settle down the mind in meditation or in some other fashion, we come to our true self, which is pure consciousness. This pure consciousness is the foundation of everything in the universe. So you, me, everyone else, all creatures, all objects, everything is fundamentally nothing but pure consciousness. So what the saints tell us, and what I try to get across in my books as best I can, translating the saints into fiction, is that we can calm our minds down to the point where we experience pure consciousness and meditation. And then as we grow more and more comfortable being in pure consciousness, we carry that over into our daily life. Once that's established 24-7, so that literally when we're sleeping and dreaming and waking, we never leave pure consciousness, then that is enlightenment. And that's the highest state um, that a human can attain to. And it's the goal of life, whether we realize it or not. We're constantly evolving towards that, even if we don't realize that we are. How do we know when we are there? We have integrated. Yeah. Good, good point. Yeah, how we know we're there is that once you're in pure consciousness, it's unmistakable. So mm-hmm. again, I believe that we've all had these experiences. And what I try to get across to people when we talk about meditation, Valeria, is that yeah. You've undoubtedly had it in relationship to nature or love or family or your new baby or when you were a child. Those moments, uh, precious moments when nothing could have been better. Mm -hmm. There was no sense of past or future. You were absolutely established in the now. It was all perfect. You wouldn't have traded it for a billion dollars. That's pure consciousness. Now, what gets in the way of that is that we get stress as we go through our daily activities and we generate karma. And that stress and karma is what blocks us from the experience of pure consciousness. So since we live in a technical age, we have to apply a technology, which is meditation, to reversing that process of taking the busy mind to calm mind and eventually to thoughtlessness completely And that thoughtlessness, when we, what I call transcend thinking, we sit in pure consciousness, then the mind is not thinking, but we are being, we are simply sitting there being conscious. And that pure consciousness is so blissful, so perfect, so peaceful, Mm -hmm. that you wish that you don't, you're not having a wish because you're not thinking, but had had you had one at the time, you would have wished that it would never go away, right? So, (laughs) so it's enlightenment for the, and it's not something that's easily attained. I won't pretend that it is. I mean, it's a great accomplishment. It's the goal of life. So it's not something that we just pretend that we have it, or we can just make a mood that we're in it or something. A lot of people these days, I think, tend to act like it's something that's relatively simple to attain. No, if you want to be a great artist, or you want to be a great scientist, or whatever, you have to train yourself. And if you want to be a great um, soul, you want to be an enlightened being, you have to do the work. And the work is 
some way, and I think meditation is the optimal way, calming yourself down to the point where your mind stops thinking and you sit in pure consciousness. And the saints compare it, the process Valeria, to dyeing a cloth. So I have this cloth, I dip it in the dye, I take it outside, I put it in the sun, and some of the color evaporates. The next day I dye it again, some more color evaporates, but some stays. And as you keep dipping yourself, your awareness into pure consciousness, more and more of it is adhering to your awareness so that eventually it doesn't go away. Your color fast, if you will, in pure consciousness. So that is indisputable when you're there. And the way that the rest of us know that you're there is that you have an optimal effect on all of us. So anybody who's around an enlightened being will feel joyful, uh, contented, calm. They will feel like they don't want to be anywhere else. And, and the saint, the enlightened being, just has this incredibly positive effect on her environment. So that's that's what we're all uh, really here for. Mm. Yeah, it sounds very much like that, this combination of joy and inner peace. Once we are there. I'm wondering if we can stay there. How can we do that? Yeah, great, great question, Valeria. And it does seem hard because all we're used to is what we are. And what we are now is a product of all of this stress. So we're constantly thinking of the future and what should I be doing? And oh my gosh, yesterday I should have done this. So the mind is actively trying to keep us on the surface of our awareness all the time. And the ego is v viciously trying to hold on to us and telling us you're Valeria and you're nothing else. So what we do is when we meditate, uh, we reverse that process. And it's so charming that the mind wants to go there once it's been there. So over time, it becomes much easier to, to sink into pure consciousness. And then it's a, it's nature organizes it. So once you're there, stress gets thrown off, karma is dissolved. Uh, the mind gets calmer, the emotions get more stable, all aspects of life improve. Now, it doesn't happen overnight unless you are a person and you might be. Uh, we don't know how each each soul is, but there are souls that are born so close to this that they don't need much to get there. Most of us, I believe, have to do a lot of work because we've had many lifetimes of building up this this karma. And uh, but the the. The, the prize is that even before we get there, every day of our life is getting better than the previous day. So generally people think, oh, the older I get, the worse life is going to be. If you're a seeker and you're gaining uh, towards your goal of, of enlightenment every day, your life is actually getting better. Your soul is getting younger, even if your body is getting older. So it's kind of a joy to be getting older because you're getting closer and closer to that ultimate goal. And uh, the reason that we think it wouldn't be able to be held on to, as you suggest, is that uh, the ego, again, is telling us, no, I'm all there is. This other thing is an illusion. You could never have that. But but we know from from the guidance of the enlightened beings who are the only people that we can trust. Right. If we talk about spiritual matters, we can't trust any Tom, Dick, Harry, Mary, Jane telling us that this is how it is. We have to know that it comes from somebody who's made it, who's actually gotten to enlightenment. And that's why in many cases in America, we can't find an enlightened master to listen to, but we can you know, read their books. We can watch their videos if they were alive in that age. <clears throat> we can read uh, the, you know, the holy books and we can see what enlightened people said 
about this state, and it's all remarkably the same naturally. They're all saying the same thing, that this is what it's like when you're there, this is how to get there. And it makes scientific sense. It's not something that you're trying to create a mood that you believe in it or something. It makes sense that if you can calm down and you can experience this pure consciousness, and then you do that repeatedly, you're going to get calmer and calmer and calmer so that what happens when you come out of meditation is you are not overwhelmed by the stress and pace of modern society. You're bringing into that society the tranquility that you developed on the inside. And what we see from these saints, Valeria, is that they are not overshadowed when they go out. So they could be flying in an airplane or addressing 20,000 people or be, you know, you know, staying up all night traveling to the next meeting or whatever. And it never changes because it's once it's attained, it's impossible to lose it. So it's ba it basically destroys the illusion that you are separate from everything out there, that you are an individually separate being. And it shows you that you are something that is the same as everyone else. So it makes things like love your brother as yourself make sense because no longer is my brother different than me. We are both pure consciousness. I am the same thing as Valeria is. I am the same thing that that animal is. I am the same thing that star is. And once that awareness is gained, it's unity with all of creation. And, you know, that's that's just perfection. Yeah, true. What is life to you, Richard? Not what life is about, uh, but ultimately, what is what is this? <laughs> yeah, what it is, is we're here to attain enlightenment. So we, as I mentioned earlier, we may not know it. People may think, oh, I'm here because I've got to be the greatest engineer. Or I've got to make the most money or I've got to be the president of the United States and, you know, wh whatever their ego is telling them. But what's going on behind the scenes is that nature has them on a path to attain this great goal. So every time you incarnate, you, you yourself help design a plan for this lifetime. And that has to do with the karma that you are bringing into it. So uh, Maharishi used to say, it's like opening a business each time you, you incarnate, you have an account balance of assets and liabilities. I've got good karma, I've got bad karma. You're gonna be getting painful situations from the bad karma. You're gonna be getting lucky breaks from the good karma. But the point is that you're going to be on a path to learning the lessons that you didn't learn the last time. So just as in school, you get graduated from first to second grade and so on. So in life, you, you know, learn the lessons that were cruder and then the lessons that are subtler and then the final lessons and then and then you attain enlightenment. So what life is, is that pursuit of enlightenment and what I try to encourage people and the reason that I write my books is I'm trying to say, spend your precious time in this human body going for the absolute greatest prize there is. It's not money. It's not, uh, you know, interpersonal romantic love. It's not ego. It's not status. It's none of that. You can be poor. You can be humble and you can be alone, whatever. But if you're completely at peace and in bliss then you're far ahead of somebody who might be a billionaire, but is popping all kinds of pills and, and drinking alcohol all the time. So um, it life is about gaining enlightenment and uh, getting it as soon as possible. So it behooves us to spend our time doing the things that can get us there more quickly.
What is the opposite of life, in your opinion? Um, there, there ultimately is nothing that is uh, out there except pure consciousness. All, all the rest of it is an illusion. So when we look at the world, uh, we're looking through senses. And to an enlightened person, the world that we see from ignorance, from spiritual ignorance, is as dreamy as the dreams that we all have at night when we wake up we say oh that was just a dream that's what an enlightened person would say about our perception of the world that hey there's a separate person and uh, i'm you know this body and you know i'm separate all that kind of stuff is so illusory to uh, to an enlightened being that um it's just like a dream to them so i would say there's nothing that's uh, the opposite of life because ultimately pure consciousness is the only reality everything that changes according to the saints is not really real with a capital r because it changes and it goes away so it's phenomenal uh, even a star will disappear everything will disappear but what never changes is this foundation of all of it so even when the universe collapses in on itself and goes through some great cycle and then has to reemerge or whatever, the pure consciousness that's the basis of that recreation of the universe never changes. So it's the one real thing and it has no opposite. It has no characteristics. Um, Maharishi used to compare it to the quantum mechanical field in physics where it's this vast infinite you know, potential out of which everything can come but you can't apply any adjectives to it. You can't say it's this or it's that because it doesn't have characteristics. It's just there. And uh, so long way of saying it, but I don't think that there, there's an opposite of life. One might be tempted to say, oh, it's people that are trying to act so negatively that they're working counterproductively to enlightenment. But that's actually part of the plan for them and for their environment as well, that uh, Ramana Maharshi once said that suffering is actually the way to enlightenment and people were scratching their heads. But if you think about it, that when you've suffered the most is often the times when you turn inward. So if everything's coming up roses for you and you're, you're making money and you're famous and you're this and you're that, the temptation is going to be to get very into your ego and think, oh, look how rich I am and look how famous I am and all that kind of stuff. The moment that, you know, the lover dies or the child dies or you get cancer, you know, whatever it is, the suffering starts. Then you turn inward and you start saying, why did it happen to me? And I'm going to look inside myself for peace. And it's nature's way of, of turning us inward to pursue pure consciousness. So uh, I would say there's there's really no opposite of life. It's just all part of, of the plan towards evolution. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? I think the greatest need is for people to begin to meditate, uh, honestly, because it sounds simplistic, but the collective consciousness is nothing more than that. It's the collection of all of our consciousness. So when people say, oh, the world, uh, what the masters tell us is think of yourself, right? If you became enlightened, one enlightened being is like a lighthouse for humanity. So when I look at Maharishi's life, I mean, millions of people began to meditate and change their lives forever as a result of one person attaining enlightenment and spreading that message to the world. So um, you become so powerful when you operate from what he called the, the home of all the laws of nature, pure consciousness, that anything can be created from that level. So if, if, 
If you work from that level, you're very powerful in affecting the collective consciousness. If they found out in studies of, of meditation that if just 1% of the people in an area begin to meditate, it has a collective effect on the whole that's dramatically out of proportion to that 1%. So it's like a seed particle, if you will, to bring orderliness to the whole. So I think if we all stopped trying to only be uh, outside oriented and began to spend time inside and then um, when we went out into the world our activity would be much more effective and it would be much we would be spreading much more peace and, and love than we would if we went out there stressed and, and tried to do it from the superficial level of the, of the conscious mind yes yes i agree i'm wondering why so many of us choose not to be in silence and to meditate and to be quiet why do you think that is yeah each of us brings into each incarnation as i mentioned earlier the karma of their their previous existences so some people are are still at a relatively crude stage where they have lots of <clears throat> sensory desires and you know ego things and anger and this and that and the other thing and and telling them about meditating and being quiet might be the exact opposite of what they're ready to hear. So they will get there in their own time and we can try to affect them lovingly as best we can. But nature always has the plan. So there, there may be people that will just never be ready for that message in any given lifetime. But, um, but yeah, it, it depends on uh, the makeup that you bring in, your, that your soul has. Uh, because when you leave the body each time you carry with you in a in a subtle causal body all the um, the karmic accounts that we referred to earlier so that when you incarnate again you you can just open up those account books and you've got that same stuff to deal with so there's there's no escaping um, this evolution it's going to happen willy-nilly uh, but it what it again behooves you to do is as much as possible uh, start trying to, to do it effectively as quickly as possible. Do you believe in mind continuation, reincarnation and lifetimes and all that? Yes, yes. So um, if you think about it, and this used to really perplex me when I was a youngster, Valeria, I would think like, wow, a baby is born and dies four hours later. And the people mm -hmm. at my church were telling me that's its one chance <laughs> of human life. You know, <laughs> or if they didn't, if they weren't born in our religion, then they're not, you know, not going to go to the good place. And I'm going, ah, 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 that's <laughs> a Libra. That does not sound fair to me. <laughs> so. Yeah, so if you think about it, that would be ridiculous that your one chance at human life might be torturous pain for four hours and then death. So, so yes, we absolutely continue on, and many people have had experiences of their other lives and so on. And if you think about it logically, it only makes sense. The whole universe is quite logical. Why would human life be the only illogical part of it? So if you think about school, you obviously keep going through those grades until you graduate. So it certainly makes sense for the soul, which is in a school called Lifetimes, that it would have a chance to learn what it didn't learn the last time. And if it uh, you know, did something bad to make up for it in the next case and so on. And then uh, the Indians the, and Vedanta, they, they have figured all this out meticulously. So that's what always impressed me about them was that they didn't just give you something to believe in. They explained logically how hey, when you die, your body dies, here are these subtle organs that are not like the nose for smelling, but the subtle organ of, of smell and so forth. They, they 
conglomerate together and take with them the, the ingredients necessary to build a new human body. And then you go to a plane of existence that's appropriate to what you accomplished in that lifetime. So when the other religions talk, when religions talk about heaven and hell and so on, it's, it's a crude expression. But what it really means is true, which is that if you've been a wonderfully loving person, you're going to spend some time you know, kind of grooving on that good karma on a celestial plane where merely think of something and it fulfills, you know, wishes fulfilled instantly without a body. And uh, conversely, if you're Hitler or Stalin or somebody, then you're going to be uh, reaping, you know, the consequences of all that horror that you propagated on the world. So it's, it's nothing mystical. It just makes logical sense that that would be the way it played out. And then when you're, the time is ripe for you, you will find parents uh, in a family environment that's appropriate for you to work out your karma and you will um, incarnate uh, into the mother's womb. And then when you're born, you will be in the environment and potentially with other souls that you you were likely with before, potentially in different roles. You know, maybe a father is now a brother or whatever. But you'll, you've met people in your life where you just feel instantly like, I know that person, right? I just met him, and I know, and we know what each other's going to say. We, we're on the same wavelength. That's not an illusion, right? That's something where the souls are really recognizing each other because they have been together before. So that's the point is that we're not bodies. Um, we're really souls, and we're not beyond souls. We're really just consciousness. So first recognize that you have a soul, and then recognize that that soul even is an illusion, that it's not some limited package of Valeria or Richard, but what it really is, is this infinite consciousness. And that is what takes a lot of development to realize. But once you do realize it, then you're completely free, because how can you be afraid if there's nothing in existence except what you are, right? There's no other to be afraid of, right? <laughs> how can you worry, right? I mean, it's, you were there you know, exactly in, in, in infinite peace and, and love and bliss. That's an interesting thing that even without the body, we continue to dream. Yeah, and you're exactly right. And I would say those are the stages, Valeria, that you just pointed out. So I remember going through a point in my life where I was trying to decide, like all these rationalists around me were telling me, hey, you're just a computer, you know, you're just a biochemical thing. And I did a lot of thinking about it. And I finally realized, no, I'm a soul. I just know. So, yeah. <laughs> so first you realize you're not just a body. Then you realize you're not just a soul. And then you get enlightenment because you realize your infinite consciousness. But you've got to first realize that there's something that's greater than the body because then that means that even if I don't accomplish it within my 80 or however many years I get on this earth this time, it's not over, right? The, the, the journey continues. So you're right that you will realize that you're not a soul, that that's another figment. It's like a bigger figment than the ego, but it's still a figment. And, uh, and, and then, you know, you'll realize that you're, you're everything that everything is. And, and that is uh, just mind-boggling to, to see when you like people would look at saints and they say oh you're gonna die where will we be without you and the <laughs> yeah. saint will say well where can i go right because they're looking at him and or her and seeing hey this little 100 pound body with this beard or this lady with long hair or whatever and he's looking at the world and going all i am is this infinite consciousness and when i look at you oh, that's all i see i'm seeing the movie screen i'm not seeing the images projected on it right so it's there's nowhere I can go. Right. And that's that's the 
that's the, the problem of trying to look at enlightenment from ignorance. And that's what I get into a lot of my books is, is the process that the, the hero or the heroine goes through as they try to and accomplish getting enlightened, uh, that last, those last steps when that ego gets sucked out and all of those, you know, you know, thousands and thousands of lifetimes of attachments and beliefs and all that stuff gets jettisoned and the, the freedom is there, but the ego is holding on so tightly because it, it's going to tell you that you're going to die, that if you let go of I'm Valeria, then you're just going to disappear in this, you know, smoke in the ether and you'll be gone. But that's an illusion because what you'll be is everything, not nothing. So. That's amazing that we are actually able to talk about these things, right? That's uh, the miracle of it all. Um, so let me ask you two questions that relate to being a male in a human body. What do you love most about being a man? Ah, good question. Um, I've always found myself to be a little kind of almost psychically androgynous. So I find that, you know, I'm male, but I'm very much in touch with my anima. So I've, I've always felt like I, I can't I can't relate to machismo and, and all this guy pounding chest stuff. So for me, it's it's more of uh, just a, a strength of uh, knowing that I can handle, you know, what comes at me and I can take care of people and protect people. And maybe on a subtle level, that's kind of male stuff. But um, I've always felt like and the people that are related to best, I, I saw it had that same kind of balanced energy where if we can't be sensitive and we can't be loving and we can't be empathetic and we can't be, you know, feeling like, you know, we can cry in the face of somebody's tragedy, um, then I, I think, you know, pretending that we're male and that's better is 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 only half the half the uh, accomplishment so uh, i would say for me it's a it's being a balance of the two where you're predominantly uh, male uh, in the sense of you know that strength and and, and that uh, rationality and you know that kind of cliche stuff but uh, also balanced balanced by the heart so it's a mind heart thing where you know the the heart has deeper wisdom than the mind so i think men tend to think everything's rational and we can just deal with this on the level of the intellect but we all know that the deeper gifts the more beautiful gifts that are to be given in life come from the heart so if you cut yourself off from that which i would call more the anima or the feminine side the, the life-giving side the birthing side um then you become kind of a caricature of a man. And uh, the same applies for women with, with the maleness uh, subordinate to the femininity or femaleness. Um, but yeah. This balance of energies, right? Feminine and masculine in the body is not trying to hold on to one idea of how to be. Yeah, I think it, it can it can become a caricature when you like all through my life when I'd see these guys that were like guys guys and I just yeah. like I just like it's so absurd right it's such a yeah. such a caricature of maleness <laughs> that you have to be constantly pounding your chest like a gorilla and acting like you, yeah. you don't care because the situation calls for you to have some compassion or something I mean it's it's not weakness to feel love and to feel empathy and to feel generosity I think our society is constructed that way that these simplistic opposites are are put on people 
but I think we're starting to get over that. But yeah, it's 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 we're clearly made out of both, and uh, attaining that balance and integrating them, I think, is is very important psychologically. What is love to you, Richard? Love is, uh, I know we said we couldn't put characteristics on pure consciousness, but I'm going to go do it. <laughs> I would say, love. I know. And that's the, that's the paradox, Valeria, because right. we're in ignorance talking about enlightenment. So it's like we have to kind of describe it because otherwise people that we're talking to that we want to get interested in it will have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. Right. So I, w- I would say that love is one of the fundamental aspects, at least when I experience pure consciousness, it's this deep love for everything. So you're, you're blissful and you're peaceful and silent, but this thing opens up in you, which is just everything in the universe is to be loved, right? That's just this, this giant heart takes over for you and you just feel that, you know, like they used to say, God cares for the smallest sparrow or whatever falling out of the tree. That's just the Bible's way of saying that that experience of pure consciousness um, so I would equate God with pure consciousness because it's infinite, eternal, all knowing, you know, like that, um, is it opens you up to complete love for everything in existence. So nothing is more important than anything else. Nobody is more precious than anybody else. They're all precious. So, um, I think love is, is fundamental. It's not what most people think of as it's personal love and it's possessive love. It's romantic love where you want something from somebody or you're counting on something from them or they're counting on you. Mm. It's not that kind of ego love. Mm, It's a generic love, which is just uh, what you're living. It's just what you're being right. That when you see, uh, something, someone, some animal, some object, whatever it is, it just draws the love out of you because that's again, fundamental to pure consciousness. So I think love is right there with bliss and peace uh, in pure consciousness that if we had to put some adjectives on it, um, uh, or some nouns on it, that those would be ones that come to mind because, uh, when you see an enlightened being, you feel that love and you feel that serenity, that peace, you feel that joy, that bliss. I mean, that's what they're projecting uh, because that's what they're living. And uh, you cannot feel unloved in the presence of an enlightened being because that's what they have become. So I think it's very fundamental to pure consciousness. How did you become a writer? Um, when I was getting out of college, I realized I wanted to write Valeria. And then, um, what I did was I also realized that, Hey, I don't have the skills (laughs) and the evolution to do it the way I want to do it. So I need two things. I want to write about, you know, spiritual stuff and I'm not evolved enough. And then I want to write really well and I don't know enough about writing. So what I did was I kind of set up this program for myself where I spent years, studying different fields, you know, color theory and fashion and, you know, astronomy. And, you know, I wanted to have the words and the ideas necessary to present anything that I wanted to talk about. So I spent time on the practical side and the English side, the usage and uh, all the grammar and, you know, all the just writing a lot, reading a tremendous amount of the best literature in the world. And then on the spiritual side, I just kept meditating and teaching meditation and trying to evolve as much as I could. 
And then I kind of made a deal with myself, which was um, the things I want to write, I know are never going to make me a lot of money. I'm not going to write some bestseller thing. I'm going to write stuff that very few people will probably want to read. So I'm going to go out in the world, work out my karma about business and money, which I was very turned off by. Like to me, money was ugly and disgusting and people who just bartered and did all this stuff to get money was kind of dirty hands that kind of really turned me off. So I had karma where I was fearful of that. So I wanted to go out, get into it, try to bring some consciousness to it, try to do deals that were fair to both sides and try to support people that were working for me to make them better and try to bring some consciousness to it. And then practically to try to get some savings so that I could retire early, which I ended up doing, and then just dedicate myself to um, the work that I wanted to do. So when I was uh, 52, I just uh, went to a beach, got a place overlooking the beach and spent five years writing a nine uh, book series called Remembering Eternity, um, which uh, was basically all that I wanted to say in life uh, uh, with any way that I wanted to say it. And then, uh, after that, I, I became, uh, focused on shorter, um, books. It's all fiction because my theory is that if you can tell a story and entertain people and, and write in a way that really inspires them, a lot of people have been kind and said that when they read the stuff that they actually see the people or they see the natural scenes I'm describing, it kind of appears to them almost like a hologram. So hopefully the, the work that I invested paid off and people you know can read it and enjoy it. But the main thing is to try to take the wisdom of the enlightened masters to the best of my ability and infuse the work with that Valeria so that when people are reading it, my goal is that they will actually have a transcendental experience while they're reading it. So if I'm talking about the saint and and his or her vibes and what this natural scene is like by the waterfall and the, what the young disciple is feeling and all these mystical experiences they're having in relation to the saint, I, I want the consciousness of the reader to settle down to the point where they actually transcend and they have an experience similar to what the, the character in the book is having. So that, that's my goal. But uh, if I can get people to at least think, hey, this is wonderful. I want to go learn to meditate or I want to explore this further. I want to go read some spiritual literature or something. Then I think I've uh, accomplished what, what I want to accomplish. Yeah, I love your mission. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah they, they say in India that the last part of your life you should spend, uh, you know, just on spiritual stuff, you know, that you'll, hopefully already you've done all the business and the family and all that kind of stuff. And now you focus on on the spiritual. And for me as an artist, it's the spiritual word that I'm trying to get out to the world. Now, again, it's in a very small way, but uh, any person that you can affect is one, one more, right? So what was the inspiration of writing your book, The Whisper of a Saint? Yeah, what I wanted to do, um, Valeria, was I wanted to tell the story of somebody, this is an American executive who all of his life, he had randomly these appearances, these, these visions of this bearded man, who would appear to him and and it would seem very real to him, but he didn't know what to make of it. Uh, finally, he gets to this critical point in his life where he's you know sick of business and is thinking about spiritual stuff. And the saint appears to him and invites him to come to India and meet with him. But he doesn't know his name and he doesn't know where he is in India. So he basically takes this huge uh, risk and just packs up his stuff and goes to India and trusts to nature to guide him 
to where this saint will be found. So it's the story of this man going to India and then signs happen. I mean, everything from animals pointing a direction on a path to Mm -hmm. people saying they've seen somebody up at a glacier. And, you know, all these things are organized to just uh, point him in the direction of where the saint is. And then eventually he comes together with the saint and they realize that they have been uh, master and disciple in other lifetimes. And uh, then it's the story of his ultimate climb uh, up up through the Himalayas on, in, on this glacier where death is uh, constantly at hand and uh, is just completely surrenders to the desire <clears throat> to attain enlightenment, even if it costs him his, his, his life. And uh, he finally, you know, gets up to the, the top of the mountain. And I won't spoil it with how it ends, but it's basically, yeah, it's basically uh, it's it's the seeking uh, and trusting to nature to guide you to find that that guru that um, will will take you the final step and, and get you there. Yeah. Did you gain new insights while writing the book? Yeah, I, I have this weird experience, Valeria, where it's funny. I had a sister and she used to have all these experiences, see angels and all this stuff. I never had any of that stuff. I just keep meditating, meditating, <laughs> never, never have anything flashy. And I go, gosh, you guys have all this stuff. But the one thing that I do have is when I'm writing, I will see all this stuff in my imagination. So I don't call it like anything like she had where you're actually seeing it, but it's just on an an imaginary level, I experience all this stuff. And so for me, it was uh, when I was going through what what the saint was talking to this uh, disciple, how they were uh, trying to get those last things out of him and get him beyond these final things and these tests that he was being given by nature and to trust and to have faith and all this kind of stuff. I think that just the exploration of it through my imagination was probably uh, helping me work out some of that, that stuff on my own. I don't think about that a lot. I just kind of trust. I love the trust component. Yeah. Yeah, you have to, because if, if, if we didn't, you know, I was thinking about that today, Valeria, it's like if it's like if we were going, you know, to on a great journey through this unknown territory, we would get a guide and say, hey, help me get there safely and, and efficiently. And the same thing with spiritual stuff. I mean, if we don't know the landscape, the only people that we can trust to guide us are not somebody who's just popular on YouTube or has this book out that's you know bestseller. We have to go to the masters, the, the enlightened beings, and say, you have made it. What do you tell me? And they will tell you remarkably the same thing, whether they come from the same tradition or not. Like Maharishi used to talk about you know Jesus and Buddha and all these people. It doesn't make any difference what background, uh, what language they use. They're all getting to the same idea that it's like Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within. Go inside, let the mind stop. Once it stops, then you'll be there. You won't be thinking anymore. You'll be in pure consciousness. So there's different ways of climbing that mountain and getting there. But once you're there, we're all talking about the same thing because there's only one truth. But we do have to rely on uh, those who have actually made the journey and we have to trust uh, we have to trust that nature is going to guide us right. and that the the wisdom of the masters is going to you know correctly advise us and um, 
and then trust your intuition because there will be people that come into your life that you just know they're there for a purpose to help you, you know, get onto the path or stay on the path. And then there's others that you just know this person is not right for me. This is not evolutionary. And as much as I'm tempted to be, I, I can't afford to be with them. Right. You mentioned imagination earlier, and now came to mind this uh, question about being in the present moment and imagining. How is imagining different from thinking? Yeah, so when I'm talking about imagining for writing the book, what, what I hope is happening when I'm writing Valeria is that my consciousness is actually settling down to the level that's uh, maybe not uh, pure consciousness, but it's very subtle. So I try to um, create from, I only write after I've meditated and with headphones, silent, noise silencing. I try to be very, very silent when I'm writing so that not only am I hearing the sounds to make sure that they, they, they're euphonious and, and they go together well, but I'm also uh, hopefully cognizing some stuff um, from pure consciousness. So if I'm thinking about that saint and, and what they would have said or what they would have done or how the scene would look, that it's coming from, because if you think about pure consciousness manifesting into the gross creation, Maharishi used to say it's like a bubble, Valeria, coming up from the bottom of a lake. And as it comes up because of atmospheric pressure, it gets grosser and grosser and then it bursts on the surface. He said, if you get very close to the bottom of the lake where it's the tiniest bubble where that thought is just formed, it will contain much of the knowledge, the wisdom of pure consciousness, because it hasn't been grossified yet by coming up towards the surface of the mind. So what I'm hopefully doing when I'm writing this stuff is settling down enough that when I talk about imagining, it's it's coming from a level that's closer to pure consciousness than it is to just the surface of the mind. So there's no planning I just allow uh, what's happening to kind of write itself, and um, and hopefully those those decades of of meditating have given me some access to to those subtler levels uh, from from which I can do that because that's hopefully the value that's that's in the work. And speaking of meditation, I hear the word mindfulness a lot. Is that meditation is a practice for mindfulness? Yeah, and I think it's the other way around. And that's uh, one of the things that I think it's important to tell people is I know things get really popular. But the thing to realize is that you cannot consciously do any of this, right? So you can't say, hey, today, I'm going to be mindful. Because, because all of the stress that you've accumulated, all the karma that you have, all the impressions that have been laid down in your nervous system, so that when somebody says candle, and you were burnt by the candle, when you were a child, you flinch, and all that stuff is built into you so deeply that you can't just consciously say, I'm going to suddenly be spiritual. It's, it's, an, it's a delusion. So I'm not saying it's not helpful to say, hey, pay more attention to what's going on and try to focus on the person you're talking to. That's all great. But it is fundamentally on the surface of the mind. The only way that we're going to truly evolve towards enlightenment is to get to pure consciousness. And the, you cannot get there by using the conscious mind. The conscious mind is the problem. Right. So uh, people say, should I listen to music and all this stuff? And I say, no, because the music is going to draw you out. And the mantra, which I recommend mantra meditation is going to draw you in. 
So you want to be using a technology like the mantra that's tested over thousands of years to have these properties of settling the mind so that you will spontaneously, it's like grabbing a weight and having it pull you down to the bottom of the ocean. You, you can't go there by just, you know, flipping around on the surface with your arms. Um, so it's, I don't mean to disparage anybody trying to be spiritual because that's great. But I think time is so precious that I want people to be as efficient as possible about how they pursue it and getting to pure consciousness. You know, you can do it, you know, through different traditions. I mean, the Sufi spin and, you know, the Zen people do their Zen thing and so on. I'm not saying this is the only way, but I am saying that you have to use an efficient technology. And I believe Vedanta from India is the most efficient mantra meditation is to get the mind to go there. What Maharishi would say is that if you just direct the mind to pure consciousness, it naturally goes to what's most attractive. So if you're sitting in a boring lecture and there's a, you know, a a pretty girl walking by or a bird singing a beautiful song, whatever it is, you're going to go away from the boring professor and look at the girl or listen to the bird. The mind wants to be, go to the area of greater charm. So if pure consciousness is so charming, which it is, if we just turn the mind inward and let it go, it will dive down there to pure consciousness. Now, it won't do it instantly and forever. It will bounce back up into a thought, and then we'll take the mantra again, dive down some more, it'll bounce back up into a thought. So you can have thoughts and feelings and physical sensations and all this stuff. And I try to explain to people um, when I answer questions online for people, I try to say, you know, they say, well, I can't make myself stop thinking. And I'm saying that that misses the point, right? You don't make yourself do anything. You let the process work and you will not instantly be calm and you will not instantly be peaceful, but you will be working towards that every time you meditate. And over time, you will find yourself being able to be down there in that silence more consistently with, um, with less time expended to get there. So, uh, it's just, it's a technology and we're in a technological age. So use a technology that's been proven to be effective, which in my mind, mantra meditation is, and just uh, trust that these saints have advised you correctly when they said, just stick with it, that you've got to do it and do it and do it and do it because you have built up such a mountain of stress that you're not going to dig a hole through that and for the light to shine through without any effort, right? It's just, and it kind of strikes me as naive for people to just go, oh, I'll just, you know, and I'm in light, I'm not, I had a spiritual breakthrough and I'm just, I'm mindful and just, you know, it's great that you're enthusiastic, but this, we're not playing around. This is a serious goal of life. It's why you're on earth in a human body and you're only here for a short time. Do it right. And that, that's what I'm trying to get across in the books is here's how you do it. And here's what you have to get out of it if you get it. Like, watch what this person is learning from this enlightened master. And if if they're getting there, you can get there. And when they describe what it's like to open their eyes afterwards and see the world in that new way, it will hopefully inspire you to, to pursue that in the, with the same dedication. Yes. I know that some of us want to uh, get there faster. <laughs> I don't know if there's such a thing, a shortcut. Um, I guess psychedelics is one of the ways some people choose to do it. What would you say about them? 
Yeah, so people, you know, can have an experience like through a psychedelic or something. You can have an experience of of a higher consciousness, but the point is that you've done it artificially, mm. and you can't replicate it unless you want to become a drug addict. Right. And uh, and it's not natural. You're doing it artificially. So, I'm not saying that in early stages people, you know, have become inspired to seek a spiritual life because of something they experienced under a psychedelic. So. I'm not saying that in each individual's life plan, there's not some people who will use that for inspiration. But what I'm saying is that if it's not able to be done, like, and you need something outside of yourself to do it, right? You need to have a pill or a mushroom or something, right? Nice. Meditation, you do not need anything. They could put you in a jail, right? In solitary confinement. And you could be in absolute bliss because you need nothing. Right. You don't need them. You don't need their pill. You don't need their medicine. You don't need their book. You don't need anything. You just sit there and close your eyes and you're in heaven, right? So right. it's a ultimate freedom. So yeah, there, there are ways to induce uh, a, a high, happy experience or a flash of pure consciousness or whatever. But the only use of that is to tell you that's possible. Once you've learned that that's possible, then dedicate yourself to doing it naturally. So um, say, fine, I had this psychedelic experience and I was one with the world. Now I'm you know, feeling pretty weird the next day as my body tries to recover from it. But what I'm taking from that was that is possible. I experienced it. Now, how can I do that without relying on something artificial that changed my biochemistry through a chemical uh, interaction? How can I do that? Um, you know, naturally through a spiritual technique and, uh, and, and you will be able to, uh, you will be able to do that. And that's the beauty of it. So, but you're right. We have that impatience in modern society. Like we have to snap our fingers and have it tomorrow. Right. And the, what I try to tell people is what, what great accomplishment in life has ever happened instantly? Like, mm -hmm. did you become a great singer by never practicing? Did you become, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a great business person by never making mistakes on deals? Did you mm -hmm. become a great politician by never giving more than one speech or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. You worked at it for years and you put all this effort in. Now think of enlightenment as like a million times more important goal than being a famous singer or a millionaire. Mm -hmm. Why would you not be required to put the same level or more of effort and dedication into that great goal uh, if you're going to achieve something that's so superior to these earthly accomplishments? And uh, it's it's not even hard. It's effortless. I mean, if you meditate and you're doing it properly, it's effortless. You just sit there and let the process work. So it's not like you have to go out and do all these push-ups and hurt and get all this pain. You're, you're doing something that's effortless and blissful. Um, but you have to do it. And that's the thing is we've got this society where everybody says, I don't have five minutes. And what Maharishi used to say was, if you don't prepare yourself for your activity, think of it like sleeping. Oh, I could stay up at another eight hours and think how much I could do. You know how you're going to feel next day? One third as productive as you would have been had you slept, right? So you, there's no cheating rest. You have to rest. And meditation is deep rest with awareness. So it's better than sleep because it's getting deep, deep rest for the body and soul to heal. But it's also maintaining pure awareness while it's doing that. So uh, there's no, you know, there's no gain to say, I'm just going to not take any time to prepare myself for activity uh, by meditating. Look, I'm just going to go work. When you know darn well, when you get burnt out, you're completely useless. You can't accomplish anything. Right. You can't even think, right? 
Um, so rest and activity, rest and activity, meditate, then go act in the world. You're right. It's the ultimate freedom. If we can access something that we already have, it's already here. <laughs> hey, the ultimate freedom. Like I always think about that, um, Valeria, that they literally could throw you in a jail. And now if they start beating on you and you're not enlightened yet, you're going to, you know, you're going to notice. But if they just put you in isolation uh, and you're a good meditator, you're going to have a pretty wonderful <laughs> time, right? Because it doesn't <laughs> matter where you are. You know, you can be in a tiny, I'm in a tiny apartment. I used to have a gigantic house, right? I'm happier in the tiny apartment, right? Because it's not out there. It's in here. It's like your happiness is not what you surround yourself with, with objects and cars and money and pretty things. It's all like, how do you feel every day when you get up and you do your thing and you talk to people and you don't talk to me, whatever it is, you just, do you have it on the inside? Do you have that stable bliss or are you all worried and anxious and, and all that? So it's freeing yourself from the dependence on what our society tries to tell you, you have to have to be uh, successful and happy. And, um, and that's a great freedom because you can never control the externalities. I mean, your lover can leave you, your bank account can get wiped out in an economic crash, your health could disappear tomorrow. All these things can be taken from you in the snap of a finger, but what can't be taken from you is your inner peace. Mm -hmm. And that will, that will always be with you. I have a few final questions for you, but before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? I uh, would just like to say that I encourage everybody to meditate, that uh, that's the most important thing that we could possibly do. Yeah. Okay, so here's one. For he now constantly lived in a realm few people can even imagine, that of all possibilities. Nothing could ever possibly go wrong in this world of his. Everything that happened, happened for a purpose and a life-enriching purpose at that. Each test that he was put through was a necessary one. Every obstacle that he had to overcome was an inevitable one. The journey from spiritual ignorance to enlightenment could not possibly be an easy one. Otherwise, most of humanity would be enjoying the bliss of realization rather than suffering through the misery of ignorance. Livering every moment as it were, as it indeed it truly was, forever. He never projected himself into the future to a place farther up this avenue or to the next difficult mogul. Each step he took, he took in a changeless eternity, and nothing could pull him out of that residence in pure consciousness. We're a wonderful writer too. Beautiful message. If you knew you would die soon, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? Nothing different. Um, I would uh, definitely try to talk to my children, uh, give them you know, my last remaining uh, advice uh, and obviously enjoy being around them. But no, I'm very, uh, very content with uh, with what I'm doing and I'm doing my best. And I feel, I, as I said earlier, at this stage of my life, it's if we've gained anything, and my wisdom is not my wisdom. It's the wisdom of the masters that I'm just passing on secondhand. So I give all credit to the masters. But if we can do anything in that last portion of our life to pass on whatever great wisdom we've had the fortune to be given by others, um, it behooves us to do that because giving is, is all important in life. It's not about taking. It's all about giving. Mm. Yes. And my last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of now? 
I know that we're here to be enlightened, that that's our goal. We may not make it in this specific incarnation, but we will eventually make it. Um, I know that we should do everything that we possibly can to get there quicker. So that means living a healthy life for the body, establishing habits so that we uh, take care of the body in terms of sleep and exercise and diet and avoiding uh, intoxicants and all of that. Um, and um, I know that the preciousness of enlightenment is something that if we only have the tiniest flavor of it, it will motivate us to go for it uh, 100% because it's something that is indescribably delicious, right? It's, it's so perfect that even a moment's flavor of it is enough to inspire you for a lifetime. So I really want people to meditate um, because once, and I, when, I, when I teach meditation, Valeria, sometimes I would have children and they would just transcend immediately and they would come out of it and looking like, oh my God, like angels on earth, you know? So they were so pure in their nervous system, right? But that's something that we can all have, right? Is just to have, I remember when I first was instructed and I just realized this thing that I had as a child that I just spent my whole life before I learned to meditate thinking, how can I get back to that? I want that. I want that, that heaven on earth, that thing when I would just expand to be as big as the room and everything was perfect. How can I get that? So it's not just a fluke that comes and goes. And uh, when you have that and you realize, wow, this person is giving me a technique that anytime I do it, I mean, it may not happen every time, but I have a chance of experiencing that every time I do this. And once I get there, I will just be where nothing else could ever be wanted, right? You could not give me a billion dollars to leave that state. Uh, I just want to be there and nothing else is of any importance. So uh, I've learned that um, trying to encourage as many people as I can in the world to find that for themselves and get hooked on that so that then as we all begin to do that, then we change, as we talked about earlier, Valeria, that collective consciousness, we start to raise up the consciousness of the world so that we be can become less violent and more loving and we can become more caring for the environment and we can, you know, take care of those who don't have and we can start to do all the life supporting things that, that we would want to do if we didn't have, you know, ignorance standing in the way. Thank you so much for your presence, your profound wisdom and um, spiritual fun, the fun. <laughs> You're fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me, Valeria. I really appreciate it. You're doing great work there by getting this, these spiritual messages out to people. Yes, and thank you, Richard. And I have one more technical question. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Sure. Um, so um, you can find my books on Amazon. Um, they include uh, The Whisper of a Saint that Valeria referred to earlier, Remembering Eternity. I have one called Lucinda, uh, which is the story of a woman, um, kind of a Siddhartha story where it's the evolution of a woman to enlightenment, uh, which is dedicated to women. It's a little hard to search for that one on Amazon if you just put in Lucinda. But if you put in Lucinda and then maybe my last name, Maddox, M-A-D-D-O-X, you can find that. I also have a website, richardmaddox.com. And um, um, uh, you can also find me on Facebook and uh, Twitter, Richard D. Maddox, with a D in the middle for the initial. Um, and I post uh, spiritual stuff on all of that. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Richard. And we'll talk soon. Thank you, Valeria. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye Blessings. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. 
To learn more about Richard Maddox and his work, please visit richardmaddox.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.